the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. The book is uh, targeted toward women sharing their faith. We have unique opportunities to minister to women and children that perhaps our male counterparts don't. We'll talk with her about her book, The Blue Cord, when she joins us later this hour. We'll also take a look at Russia and whether or not it's withdrawing in order to redeploy or what's going on there and much, much more what's uh, happening in Ukraine, as well as right in Washington, as the president has pitched it, the largest hike in tax hike in U.S. history. All of that coming up on today's program. But first, some of the news. Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, she entered into a settlement agreement. It guaranteed the non-enforcement of the residency requirement in Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. The statute limited physician-assisted suicide access to residents of Oregon. But no more. We already have a problem with dangerously short physician-patient relationship and the push to eliminate any waiting period for life-ending drugs. We should not be expanding access to lethal prescription. That's a quote from Lois Anderson with Oregon Right to Life. She points out that the residency requirement at least protected some patients from predatory practices going unnoticed in the current executive, uh, or rather, execution of the law. By agreeing to a settlement, the attorney general prevented the legal claims from being addressed in court. This course of action leaves the constitutional challenges unanswered. Also, it allows Oregon officials to refrain from executing the law without the passage of official policy. Or legislation. Anderson goes on. Oregon leadership is continuing to push their controversial agenda without accountability or due diligence on life and death issues. Oregon has launched its new industry, death tourism. In other news, with answers in hand, President Biden held a cheat sheet of prepared answers for a key question during his White House news briefing on Monday. A question about why his remarks on Saturday suggested support for regime change in Russia. The back and forth on that comment is continuing. Will Smith has spoken. He was publicly apologized to Chris Rock after he slapped the comedian during the Oscars on Sunday evening. The Academy is considering what kind of repercussions there will be. As a response to his actions, Ukraine's defense intelligence ministry released a list of more than 600 alleged Russian spies working in Europe in an apparent attempt to burn them and weaken the Russian intelligence operation. President Biden made a renewed push to galvanize congressional Democrats to overhaul the nation's tax code and dramatically raise rates on corporations and ultra wealthy Americans. In an apparent poisoning attempt, a Russian oligarch and at least two senior Ukrainian peacekeepers suffered symptoms from a suspected poisoning attack, but have recovered. Sean Hannity points out, after yet another batch of very bizarre blunders by President Biden that are sparking outrage from American allies all across the globe, we're now at a point where it's pretty much anyone's guess what he means or is actually saying. 
Laura Ingram criticized the president for comments made about Putin, saying uh, they were the most dangerous flub heard around the world. And progressive Democrats took aim at the president's budget proposal, calling the increase in military spending unacceptable. Molly Hemingway, she weighed in, saying that uh, the claim that big tech censorship hits both political parties equally simply because a few conservative outlets are allowed to exist on social media platforms is gaslighting in the extreme. And in another um, deja vu, (laughs) deja vu moment, President Biden's uh, multiple gaffes in discussing Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine evokes his uh, similar missteps during his botched Afghan military withdrawal. CNN published an op-ed accusing Senate Republicans who questioned Katanji Brown-Jackson, the judge, during her confirmation hearing of being extremists, as if now questioning a proposed uh, Supreme Court justice is extreme. A PBS reporter faced mockery online after she told President Biden that he had more federal, um, or rather foreign policy experience than any president who ever held his office. And Brandon Judd reveals that DHS is set to implement a new rule substantially changing, um, substantially changing the role of asylum officers. So instead of simply determining an asylum seeker's credible fears under the new rule, asylum officers will now have the same authority as a judge. James J. Carafano suggests that Biden's NATO trip is a reminder that Americans are led by a tired man of limited ability, backed by a team who are no better than when they worked for President Obama. And Carol Markowitz says that when Biden does speak, it's uh, to terrify the American people and sends them scrambling for the nearest bomb shelter. In other news, when Western um, sanctions have disrupted nearly every part of Russia's financial system, There is one big exception. Russia has apparently built parallel payment systems that escaped Western sanctions. Crimea sanctions spurred Russia to build its own mere payments network, taking the sting out of Visa and MasterCard exits. Well, the domestic payment system continued to work smoothly after Visa, Inc. and MasterCard, Inc. pulled out earlier this month. And while the card giants uh, exited from Russia, it was viewed as a significant move by many in the West. The reality on the ground was anything but. Most Russian consumers never lost the ability to use their MasterCard or Visa branded cards to pay for things within the country. There were roughly 197 million MasterCard or Visa cards in Russia at the end of 2020, according to the Nelson Report, the trade publication. But behind the scenes, the cards don't rely on the U.S. network system to process payments in Russia. For years, they've been used uh, using a homegrown system overseen by Russia's central bank. The national payment card system, known by its Russian uh, initials NSPK, runs the financial plumbing that underpins card transactions in Russia, even for cards bearing Visa and MasterCard logos. I can't actually see your hand. I'm going to move this when we come in. So what What was the time there? One minute. Okay, I'll take care of that when we get to a break. Just talking to Sam. He uh, lets me know how much time we have, and I have a mic that is precisely where his hand is, and I can't tell uh, what the time actually is. Thank you. I appreciate that, Mike. Senator Tommy Tuberville is questioning why women's rights groups aren't fighting to keep transgender athletes out of women's sports. Apparently, women's groups can pick and choose which women's issues they actually care about. 
which women they care about. Will Smith has apologized for his poisonous and destructive act of violence. That's how he characterized it. We'll tell you more about it in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, Karen Bijani will join us to talk about her book, The Blue Cord, coming up later this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Karen Bajani. She's the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. Well, Will Smith has apologized for his what he referred to as poisonous and destructive act of violence. He added a personal apology to Chris Rock to the apology that was heard yesterday. The message uh, Denzel Washington had for him can be found on a red state. And there are many questions. The Academy's uh, condemnation of violence after they let Smith stay after assaulting Chris Rock um, are being asked. The Screen Actors Guild condemned the action and vowed to ensure this behavior is appropriately addressed. We're still waiting for what that will mean. And there's talk Smith could lose his Oscar. Chris Rock apologized for the nature of the joke that upset Smith as well. Russia is being accused of relocating thousands of uh, Mariupol um, civilians to Russia. From that story in the BBC, Ukraine's deputy prime minister said 40,000 have been moved from Ukraine to Russia, Russian-held territory, without any coordination with Kiev. The refugee now in Russia said all of us were taken forcibly. Meanwhile, Ukraine is seeking a ceasefire, but Putin is rejecting the compromise. Guy Benson looked at the recent Biden war gaffes, which we've already addressed, and why it's absurd to compare the blunder to Reagan's tear down this wall. Florida Governor DeSantis signed the bill that stops teaching sexual orientation to young children, kindergarten through third grade. Governor DeSantis signed the uh, strangely controversial bill on Monday. From another story in the National Review, dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill by critics, the law is intended to restore power to parents to determine when and how their children should learn about such sensitive subjects. Contrary to its misleading nickname, the bill does not outlaw teachers, administrators, or students from using that word. Rather than a bigoted effort to ostracize LGBTQ students and faculty, the bill is explicit that it is designed to keep curriculum about sexuality out of kindergarten through the third grade classroom from a, uh, the governor of Oregon uh, on Twitter, Oregon in Oregon, we say gay. I'm horrified and outraged by the anti LGBTQA plus legislation that was just signed in Florida, making schools a less safe place for these kids. Oregon will always be a safe, inclusive and welcoming place, no matter one's sexual orientation or identity. Clearly, she has not read the legislation or the law. NFL announced that teams must hire female or minority offensive coaches, or I should say offensive. It's a little bit different. Strangely um, left out of the equation, LGBTQ plus. Well, flight attendants are suing over the mask mandate on planes. Uh, Nine flight attendants from six states said Monday they're suing the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention over the federal mask mandate on public transportation, arguing the COVID-19 rule obstructs their normal breathing over many hours and threatens aviation security because passengers refuse to comply. Disney announced its fierce opposition to the bill keeping young Florida children from early indoctrination with an absurd statement that appears to show they have no clue what the bill actually says, which I'm finding is true across the board. Chris Rock sees an uptick in ticket sales following the Oscar attack, and they've jumped in price as well. Nebraska is a step closer to making abortion a felony. 
The story notes the bill is a trigger bill that would immediately ban abortions once the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. More female athletes are stepping up, insisting that no more men compete as women. The story begins. Many Olympians, coaches and swimming championship alumni sent a letter to the NC2A this week calling on the organization to rectify the situation, allowing biological male swimmer Will Leah Thomas to compete against women with a significant physical advantage. Dan McLaughlin, senior writer at National Review Online, says cancel the cancelers and only the cancelers. He argues universities should reclaim the power to discipline students until they learn that this is America and act like it. To uh, to that end, the disciplinary tools available should be put to use. But if students manage to graduate high school and college and law school without developing the capacity to tolerate disagreeable speech, the legal system itself will have no choice but to take a stand to prevent them from using the tool of the law to close down the marketplace of ideas. President Biden walked back the walk back. Uh, The president sought to clarify his comments over the weekend in Poland, where he declared that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power, seemingly calling for a regime change in Russia predictably caused quite a stir. So the president on Monday sought to downplay it. First, he insisted, I'm not walking anything back, but then added, I want to make it clear. I wasn't then or am I now articulating a policy change. I was expressing moral outrage that I feel and I make no apologies for it. The Kremlin called Biden's initial comment alarming when pressed as to whether his remark was playing into Putin's propaganda. The president responded, I don't care what Putin thinks. Here's the thing. He's going to do what he's going to do. And the idea that he's going to do something outrageous because I called him for what uh, he was and what he's doing is just not rational. Uh, The trouble is, who believes Putin is rational? He went on to say, well, Ukraine and Russia talks are continuing, sort of. In an apparent signal that Moscow is looking for a way to end the war in Ukraine soon, the Russian military announced a change of operational focus, noting that it was pulling back from its thus far failed effort to surround and seize Ukraine's capital city, Kiev. With operational successes seemingly few and far between, Vladimir Putin may be looking for a way to cut his losses and secure the Russian-controlled areas in the east part of the country. The Deputy Defense Minister Alexander uh, Foman, he claimed that the military's pullback from Kiev was a goodwill gesture to increase mutual trust and create conditions for further negotiations. Meanwhile, negotiations continue. Ukraine is offering a deal to remain neutral with its security guaranteed by several third party countries, including the U.S., Britain, France, Turkey, China and Poland. Furthermore, Ukraine offered to hold continuing talks over the next 15 years with respect to the future of Crimea. Now, some are suggesting that rather than uh, withdrawing for the sake of peace, that he's simply reconstituting his forces in an effort to uh, go back and finish what was started. Poisoned at the peace talks, Ukrainians and a Russian oligarch were apparently poisoned at peace talks earlier this month. Two members of Ukraine's peace delegation, as well as the Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, came down with sudden symptoms that were typical, rather, of poisoning following their meeting. Ukraine is blaming Russia for the attack on hardliners in Moscow who say they wanted to sabotage the end of the war. However, with Abramovich also coming down with poisonous symptoms, the exact target of the attack seems somewhat unclear. What is clear is that this has all the markings of Vladimir Putin, who has a history of poisoning opponents. While the symptoms included temporary blindness and the peeling of skin, all three are expected to make a full recovery. Was this Putin simply sending a message? 
That's an unanswered question. Republican Representative Stefanik is showing off GOP women as she hopes for a pink wave. Democrats are running for the hills. Republican Representative Elise Stefanak recently boasted as she stood alongside 10 female rising stars she has endorsed with her EPAC. I didn't hear a lot of Democrats moving up to run for office in these target districts, she noted. I think most of them are playing defense. Stefanak, the number three Republican in the House, has an ambitious goal for getting 50 Republican women elected to Congress this November. In this year's favorable election climate for Republicans, with polls showing over 70 percent of Americans say the country's on the wrong track, she, um, the representative sees a huge opportunity for conservative women to win seats. With more than 280 Republican women running this election cycle, the prospect of Stefanik meeting her goal, as well as the GOP winning back control of the House, appears very promising. Well, China looked down Shanghai, its biggest city, or rather lockdown, as Omicron fuels a record surge in COVID cases. And the Biden administration will start vaccinating migrants at the border. Five-year and 30-year Treasury yields inverted for the first time since 2006, fueling recession fears. Chicago Mayor Lightfoot has a 71-person police unit to protect her personally, blaming former President Trump for her being in danger. She wanted to and did cut back on police protection for her constituents. Yale Law School has ruled out disciplinary action for students who disrupted a free speech event. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is best known for its extensive list of hate groups, is racist, according to its employees. The SPLC union members protested outside their employer's office Monday in opposition to the legal advocacy group's plan to require certain employees to return to in-person work. The union, in a statement, claimed the move targets black women because it primarily requires workers in low-level positions to return to the office. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to switch gears in just a moment. We'll be talking with Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose, speaking primarily to women. That's coming up in our next two segments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that God is bringing the mission field to your front doorstep. We have people from all cultures and faiths moving into our cities and into our neighborhoods. And then she asked the question Are you ready to share your faith with your neighbor or are you fearful? Well, in her new book, The Blue Cord, the first-time author and co-founder of I Hope Ministries, Karen Bajani, she calls all Christian women of faith to be bold and courageous, and she helps equip us to do just what God is calling us to do. The Blue Cord reveals inspiring real-life stories from women who are shining the light of Christ across cultures. Christian women have been withdrawing from conversations about faith, but today the world needs Christian women to speak up, and this requires confidence to boldly proclaim the truth to a dying world all around us. Well, my guest, Karen, founded I Hope Ministries with her husband uh, to come alongside the church and change the way everyday Christians think about starting or rather sharing their faith with Muslims and other non-believers. 
Since 2011, I Hope has emboldened tens of thousands of Christians worldwide to share the hope of Jesus across culture and religious divides. And while her husband grew up as a persecuted Christian raised in Islamic nations, she grew up right here in the American heartland, unaware of people of other faiths. She pursued the American dream. She built a successful career as a corporate executive, but God had other plans. Now she uses her corporate skills to empower everyday Christian women like you and I to share our faith across religious boundaries. She hosts the Blue Cord by I Hope podcast, a catalyst for Christian women who know they should be sharing their faith. And she champions I Hope's women's initiative by the same name. She joins us today to talk about her uh, book, The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here, Georgine. Well, let me begin by asking you to make a reference to the Blue Cord. I know it finds its reference in Scripture. Explain to our listeners why the title. Yeah, Um, in Numbers 15, the Blue Cord was given to Israelites to wear at the hem of their garments because it symbolized God's divine commands that they serve a holy living God so that every time their eyes saw it, they would remember who he is who they were in him and what he called them to do. And it really resonated with me when I came across that passage because I knew that I should be sharing my faith, yet I it was a faraway thought for me. It was like I'd forgotten who God is, what he called me to do, and who I am in him. And so that blue cord just spoke to me. Shortly after that, I read a New Testament passage where a hemorrhaging woman was pushing through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus's robe. And I realized, oh, wow, he would have been wearing that tassel with the cord of blue on his hem as well. That that hemorrhaging woman touched that. And so I think it's a real reminder for us thousands of years later that we, while we don't wear that blue cord hem on the hem of our robes today, we have the blue cord of the Holy Spirit running through us that reminds us who God is mm-hmm. and what he's called us to do today. Yeah. You make the point that uh, you entered into a situation that was radically outside of your comfort zone. It was a, a tense situation, but it taught you something impo- important about the role that we are called to play in spreading the gospel. Can you tell us a little bit about um, when you yeah. had that opportunity? Yeah. So early on, after I was married, my husband took me to the Middle East, and and he had grown up throughout the Middle East and North Africa, and we went there really into a city to encourage a fellow Christian woman missionary who was still working in a city where many Christians had fled. And so it wasn't the kind of place that my friends or family wanted me to be, and I didn't think I would actually go into that city. But we took a wrong turn, and we ended up right into the heart of the city where where my husband likes to say it's a place where many terrorists live. And I was I have never been so afraid in my life. I was in the backseat of the car just crying. I was sure we were going to die. And we made our way uh, to this woman missionary's home. And we came up through the elevator. The door opened. I was a hot mess. She (laughs) took one look at me and she said, welcome to God's house. And then she handed me tissue after tissue and cups of coffee after coffee. And when I was calmed long enough, I peppered her with questions to say, how could you live here in a place so pervasive and full of evil? This is a hostile culture. 
Why do you live here purposefully to share your faith among these people? And she, I'll never forget what she said. She was a catalyst who forever changed my thoughts. She said, Karen, Jesus is worth it all. He's always with me. And this is what he calls us to do. How could I not share my faith with these people around me who so desperately need him and don't know anything about him? Well, I thought if she could do that there in the Middle East, and she wasn't a super Christian. She was a normal, everyday woman. The only difference between us was that she was really seeking the Lord and pressing in hard and doing what he called her to do. Mm. So I wondered, could I do the same thing back in the United States? Uh, There wasn't anyone I knew who was sharing their faith across cultures. No one was modeling that for me. No one was talking about that. But that set me on a journey to begin to see, could I do this here in the United States? Should we be sharing our faith across cultures here? And, And what I realized is the answer is yes. Yeah. In the Blue Cord, you challenge women of all ages at every stage of their Christian walk to let go of fear and doubt uh, about sharing their faith. And I think that's the, the number one and two impediment that we uh, that we hold on to fear and doubt, fear that we yeah. are not going to be able to answer questions or present the gospel uh, effectively or well and doubt that God will be with us and guide us through that process. Why did you single out women in this book? I know I hope uh, addresses all believers. Why single out women in this book? And do we play a unique role in sharing the gospel with a certain segment of the population? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because uh, reaching writing this book to women was very strategic and purposeful on my part. That's because God is bringing refugees, immigrants, and international students here from some of the world's least reached nations. And these Buddhist moms, Hindu moms, Muslim moms are raising up their children to follow after God as they know him. But they don't know about Jesus. And we can't make assumptions that they do. They absolutely don't know about Jesus. And yet, right now, most everyday Christian women are not thinking about sharing Jesus with them. And so we are uniquely positioned as women, mothers, grandmothers, sisters, friends. We are uniquely suited to reach those Muslim women who are all around us. And I increasingly have missionaries say, I'm so glad you're focusing on women because women are coming to faith from these other cultures. We, we just, the harvest is plentiful. We just need so many more workers. Yeah. I think one of the, uh, another impediment for women is that we don't want to offend anyone. We don't know how yeah. to approach another woman of another faith. And it seems presumptuous if we share our faith when they already have embraced something else. Can you address that, uh, that reluctance, yeah. particularly when the stakes are so incredibly high? Yes, I love that question, and I'm just going to answer it in two parts. So first, we we come to the table with Western eyes, and here in the United States, you know, the two things we don't talk about are politics and religion. No nice Christian girl is going to talk about that, and yet, conversely, women from other faiths and cultures expect that if you really believe mm-hmm. your faith and are practicing it, you're going to mention it. And to not mention it to them that you're a follower of Jesus means that you don't really believe it or it's not really important in your life. So, number one, they expect you to, especially if you are living out your faith with purpose. And number two, um, we often approach 
the thought of sharing our faith as if all of it rests upon our own words and our own strategies. And we forget we don't have that kind of power because God the Father is the one who leads people to himself. That's right. Yeah. We need to remember that blue cord. Remember who God is who you are in him and what he has called us to do. We're going to take a quick Mm -hmm. break, but we'll continue our conversation with Karen Bajani. She is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose. We'll get practical when we come back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with my guest, Karen Bajani, she is the author of The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose, and she is the co-author of I Hope Ministries, along with her husband, to come alongside the church and change the way everyday Christians like you and I think about sharing our faith with Muslims and other non-believers. Um, you are seeking uh, uh, w- ways to change Christian women and how we think and act regarding sharing our biblical faith. What's the best place to start in this endeavor to change our, not just our perspective, but our practice? Yeah, I think the first step is to just be aware of our thoughts Mm -hmm. because our thoughts impact our actions and then that impacts our fruit. So if we're not thinking about people of other faiths and cultures living around us and that they don't know Jesus, we're not likely to step forward and begin to 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 take steps to share Jesus with them. And if we're feeling fearful or really ill-equipped about that too, then we're not going to do it either. So first is just to recognize what we think about that. Um, and then once we kind of begin to become aware and we say, hey, I know that God's calling me to push back this darkness and just to declare his glory among the nations, now there's a few simple steps that we can all take to live as authentic Christian witnesses to Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and people of other faiths all around us. How important is it that we understand their faith tradition before we share our own? Or is it important? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Oftentimes our felt need is that we need to practically get a PhD in Islam and no <laughs> Urdu before we go out there and engage with with someone of another faith or culture. But the fact is that, that Muslims all around you, Hindus, Buddhists, they can come from all different kinds of backgrounds, countries, different generations. And so you might study up for one thing, but that may not equip you to engage with your next door neighbor. So one of the greatest and best ways to do is just really lean in as an authentic Christian witness and ask curious, open-ended questions about them. And then it gets to be really fun, really fun. Yeah, I appreciate that um, you take the pressure off of having a 15-minute conversation and dominating 14 minutes of it with my testimony that we actually yeah. engage in conversation. We uh, are genuinely interested in the people with whom we're speaking. Uh, we're interested in who they are, their background, their story, and sort of earn the right to share our story as well, because we do have that kind of a genuine uh, interest in them, not just another notch on our Bible. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest fears we all have is we don't want to be that person who is that pushy, proselytizing evangelist, because we've seen people around us do it badly, and we don't want to do it that way. And so in an effort not to do it badly, we don't do anything at Mm -hmm. all. But but here's the thing, hope is not a strategy. So there's really only just a few things that we can all know and do that get us off on a running start. Your first chapter is titled, 
who are you afraid of? And again, I think that's where we start is is confronting what is it and who is it that we're afraid of? Can you discuss that just a bit? Yeah, yeah. I talked with a lot of women across North America and just said, hey, what holds you back from sharing your faith? I know what holds me back, but I wanted to know what, what holds other women back as, as well. And so what I found was there, there are all these things that are common patterns across all of us. Just when we engage with someone who's different than us, we're wired within our within our human nature to be fearful. So, so number one, we might just be fearful um, because we lack skills, or we're fearful because when we get to the bottom line, we're more concerned with about what people think about us than what God thinks about us. Mm. Oh, and that's probably the biggest one, the one I hear the most. We're trying to please people. We're trying hard not to offend. And in that process, we've forgotten who God is and what he called us to do. And that, of course, takes us to the blue cord. Remembering who he is is uh, the the first step in really understanding why we uh, even think about doing what his word calls us to do. Where do we go from there? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is it's recognizing our thoughts is half the battle. It's easy within our culture today to just get in our comfort zone within our culture and and let that culture dictate our thoughts and our actions. Um, and that's when we, as followers of Jesus, we're called to not conform to the world, but be transformed by by the living word. And so that's the first place to start is realize um, what's, what's truth and what's counterfeit within our within our world? Because there are a lot of people of other faiths and cultures all around us. And I'm glad we live in a nation where we're free to share our faith and free to speak out about what we believe. And yet, all those beliefs can't be true. So it's important that we know truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that we're not reading other Christians. We really know what what our biblical faith is founded on. Because when we begin to engage with people of other faiths and cultures, it really causes you to be stronger in your own faith about what you believe and why you believe it. One of the things you write about that's um, an important need is compassion. What role does Mm -hmm. that play in uh, addressing someone with a different worldview about what you know to be true about the God of the universe? Yeah. Uh, Well, number one, Jesus was just full of compassion. Mm -hmm. And he modeled that for us throughout the New Testament. And even as we look over the whole arc of the biblical Bible, we see how God showed compassion to his people over and over and over again. So we are to model our lives after Jesus. And if he was compassionate, that means that, that we can be compassionate too. I think there's a difference between being empathetic, though, and having compassion, because when we're empathetic, it means I can look across the street and say, gosh, my Muslim neighbor, she doesn't know Jesus. She really needs to know Jesus, and I can empathize with that. But when I have compassion, it compels me to action, to engage with her as an authentic Christian witness, and to point her to Jesus as, as hope. Um, that's the kind of compassion that I'm talking about here. Yeah, I appreciate that distinction. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, but you have a chapter titled Hope is Not a Strategy. And I think that's where some of us, I just hope someone shares the gospel with uh, fill in the blank. I just hope that they somehow have an encounter with Christ. We hope, but we don't see ourselves as part of that story, part of that, uh, that process. And 
compassion says, I, I, I so long out of compassion to be a part of that story and to introduce them to the greatest story ever told that you're not mm-hmm. reluctant. You're, you're no, no longer the, the thing you think about most. How am I going to feel? How, what am I going to do? <laughs> you're focusing on the needs of others. Right. Absolutely. When I first started this journey, I worried about all of those things. And the more that I met women of other faiths and cultures who left everything to follow Jesus and said, Karen, Jesus is worth it all. It really caused me to pause and consider, did I, did I really believe that God loves me? And in that process, when I really begin to believe that and know that within the depths of my soul, then I would be compelled to share that joy um, with other people, no matter what. And so, so when I realized that my own faith was coming up short in that area, it compelled me to lean in and to begin to seek God um, and have that kind of faith, a faith that was worth sharing and not being worried about being offending, offending other people. Um, because they didn't, they didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the book we're talking about is the blue cord connecting your faith with your, uh, your purpose. Um, in order to walk in obedience, do we need to exercise our faith? And I mean that in the sense that one would exercise the physical body. You, your proficiency improves over time. When you exercise, you can lift more weight. You have more stamina Yeah. in the same way. When we practice our faith, when we engage others with the gospel, mm-hmm. are we exercising our faith in such a way that our confidence in him increases and our capacity increases as well? Yeah. So one of the easiest things that we can start with is studies say time and time again, when we engage with God's word at least four times a week, really pressing in and studying God's word, it changes us. It changes how we see God and how we see ourselves in him and what he called us to do. So that's step one is to lean in and study God's word and to pray. Because that's where everything springs from. And that gives, that gives you a faith that's rooted deeply. And then from there, that, then you can spring forward and you feel compelled truly because you see what a life transformation is making within you. And you can't help but share that with other people. You want them to have that same kind of joy. And you're willing to press through the discomfort to get to that. Yeah. Um, the subtitle of your book is Connecting Your Faith with your purpose. And so this is very practical. There are stories of women who have uh, engaged others, perhaps stepping outside of their comfort zone to do so. And and they're so encouraging. You also have at the end of each chapter, a think it through uh, segment at the uh, end of each chapter that helps us kind of think through what we've just read, the stories and the challenge that you present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is great to think these through things through yourself with the Lord, and then also just grab a, a friend or two and just talk about these things together. These are things that within the church right now we're not really talking about, and we have an opportunity as as women, the key holders to the faith of the next generation, really to begin to talk about this topic with, within the church. Um, do women around us who don't know Jesus, do they need to know Jesus? And the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. What is our role in that? Is that something that we pay missionaries to do, super Christians to go to do? No. Jesus called us all to be his ambassadors. And so it's through community as we wrestle with these questions together, we can lock arms and be more emboldened together to begin to practice sharing our faith. 
Now, you host a podcast, The Blue Cord, by I Hope Podcast. How can our listeners connect with you there? Yeah, look, just look for The Blue Cord, comma, I Hope Ministries on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or you could also find it on the website, thebluecord.org, and you can listen that way, too. Well, Karen, I so appreciate this very practical book that speaks to the heart of women and calls us outside of our comfort zone into obedience to Christ and to share his gospel. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you, too. Really appreciate it. Again, the book, The Blue Cord, Connecting Your Faith with Your Purpose, Karen Bajani. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Sam Maupin engineering today's program. Well, Russia is ready to redeploy Kiev forces, not withdraw, U.S. officials say. Well, one U.S. official says that any movement of Russian forces from around Kiev is a redeployment, not a withdrawal, and the world should be prepared for a major offensive against other areas of Ukraine. Well, the remark comes after Russia claimed it was withdrawing forces there in hopes of laying the groundwork for a peace deal with Ukraine. The U.S. officials say, don't you believe it? History says otherwise. Meanwhile, the White House said Tuesday that President Biden will convene a call with President Macron of France, Chancellor Scholz of Germany, Prime Minister Draghi of Italy, Prime Minister Johnson of the United Kingdom to discuss the latest developments regarding Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Ukraine's military said Tuesday that Russian forces have destroyed at least 60 religious buildings since their invasion began last month. Their bombings have been indiscriminate. U.S. officials say Russian troops are redeploying, not withdrawing. That's an important point. And the Pentagon says Russians failed to take Kiev, which surprised everyone. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said that the Russians have failed to take the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, which he says was an objective for their forces. And U.S. Um, Commander uh, Todd Walters said it was uh, in the 70 to 75 percent range in terms of Russian forces dedicated to Ukraine, 70 to 75 percent. He's the head of the U.S. European Command speaking Tuesday, saying that Russia has devoted the vast majority of its military personnel to the invasion of Ukraine. Well, during a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing, Senator August King of Maine noted the large number of Russian reserves committed to the cause. And he asked Walters uh, what portion of the Russian military was now involved in the invasion? What portion of their entire military force in terms of people have they committed? In a different setting, I can give you a precise number, but in the 70 to 75 percent category are devoted to this from a Russian perspective at this time, Walter said. Well, the um, uh, senator noted that this is a very substantial portion of their total force in Ukraine. In light of this, he asked if Ukraine would be able to successfully stall the Russians or push them back. Walters uh, said he believes Ukraine can succeed in stalling the Russians, but stopped short of any further optimism about Ukraine's chances. Still, Walters noted that Ukrainian forces show a very, very positive learning curve, leading him to be optimistic about their ability to force additional stalling by Russia. Earlier in the hearing, it was mentioned that American forces increased their numbers in Europe from roughly 60 to 100,000, I should say 60,000 to 100,000, due to the Russia-Ukraine war. And Walters said he expects that the U.S. will need another increase 
before it's over, saying, I think what we need to do from a U.S. forces perspective is look at what takes place in Europe following the completion of the Ukraine-Russia scenario and examine the European contributions and based on the breadth and depth of the European contributions, be prepared to adjust the U.S. contributions. He said in response to Senator Roger Weicker, um, and my suspicion is we're going to still need more. So more than 100,000 troops, U.S. troops may be needed in the region, not in Ukraine. We don't have a NATO commitment there, but to uh, other NATO allied countries. Well, on this day in history, 1638, Swedish colonists settle up in present day Delaware. 1867, Britain's parliament passes and Queen Victoria signs the British North America Act, creating the Dominion of Canada, which would come into being the following July. 1943, on this day in history, World War II rationing of meat, fats, and cheese begins, limiting consumers to store purchases of an average of about two pounds a week of beef, pork, lamb, and mutton using a coupon system. 1962, Jack Parr hosts NBC's Tonight Show for the final time. Johnny Carson would debut as the host the following October. 1971, the jury in Los Angeles uh, recommends the death penalty for Charles Manson and three female followers for the 1969 Tate LaBianca murders. The sentences would be commuted. Also in 1971, Army, Army Lieutenant William Calley Jr. is convicted of murdering 22 Vietnamese civilians in the 1968 Mai Lake Massacre. Calley would serve three years under house arrest. 1973, the last United States combat troops leave South Vietnam, ending America's direct military involvement in the Vietnam War. 1974, eight Ohio National Guardsmen are indicted on federal charges stemming from the shooting deaths of four students at Kent State University. 2017, Britain files for divorce from the European Union. Brexit, it was called, as Prime Minister Theresa May sends a six-page letter to EU Council President Donald Tusk. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, Russia announces the expulsion of more than 150 diplomats, including 60 Americans. That's 6-0 and says it was closing a U.S. consulate in retaliation for Western expulsion of Russian diplomats over the poisoning of an ex-spy and his daughter in Britain. Well, President Biden, he made a renewed push on Monday to galvanize congressional Democrats to overhaul the nation's tax code and dramatically raise tax rates on corporations and the ultra wealthy Americans. The president laid out the the tax hikes as part of a five point eight trillion dollar budget blueprint for federal spending in fiscal 2023, which begins in October. Under his proposal, taxes would be would raise rather rise by two point five trillion dollars marking the largest increase in history in dollar terms. The deficit would be $1.15 trillion. Well, the higher taxes would largely be borne by Wall Street and the top sliver of U.S. households in the form of a steeper corporate tax, a modified wealth tax, and a global minimum tax. Uh, The president uh, said that we are reducing the Trump deficit, returning our fiscal house to order, Uh, He was speaking at the White House on Monday, referring to the widening spending gap under former President Donald Trump. He said the budget makes prudent investment and economic growth a more equitable economy while making sure corporations and the very wealthy pay their, there's that phrase, fair share. The taxes outlined on Monday include a minimum 20 percent tax on the incomes of U.S. households worth $100 million or more, similar to other proposals that Democrats floated last year to pay for Biden's massive spending plan. 
But those pitches fell to the wayside after talks with Virginia. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin collapsed. So what is the prospect that this might succeed? It's an open question. The so-called billionaire minimum income tax would raise $361 billion in revenue over 10 years and apply to the top 0.01 percent of households or about 20,000 Americans. The White House said that roughly that's roughly half the revenue stems from the country's 700 billionaires. We'll continue to take a look at what the president is proposing, but I need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the president's largest tax hike in history, part of the $5.8 trillion budget request. Uh, that he announced yesterday under the proposal, the wealthiest Americans would be required to pay a tax rate of at least 20 percent of their full income or a combination of wage income and whatever they made in unrealized gains. If a billionaire is not paying 20 percent of their income, they'll owe a top up payment that makes up the difference to meet the new minimum. Well, households that are paying 20 percent will not be required to pay an additional tax. Well, because many of the ultra rich derive their vast wealth from the soaring value of assets like stock and property, which are not considered to be taxable income unless that individual sells or uses it or accesses it, they're able to legally store their fortunes and reduce their tax liability. Under current law, a gain is only taxed if and when the owner sells the asset. Well, as a result, this new minimum tax will eliminate the ability of the unrealized income of ultra high net worth households to go untaxed for decades or generations, the White House said in their budget proposal. Although the president didn't endorse a billionaire's tax during the 2020 presidential campaign, he threw his support behind the idea this past year with uh, Manchin, uh, I should say after uh, Senator Manchin killed a different spending plan that included tax hikes on well-off corporations and Americans earning more than $400,000. Well, it's not clear whether congressional Democrats will approve the president's plan to tax billionaires and ultra millionaires. Senator Manchin called a different billionaires tax proposal from Senator Ron Wyden uh, convoluted, but has since suggested that he could support some type of levy targeting the richest Americans. Well, tax experts are also pretty skeptical about the feasibility of the proposal. Uh, One, the head of the Federal Legislative Regulatory Service, Um, said the uh, proposed billionaire tax is likely to be a slow burn. It's going to take substantial time for Congress to digest the proposal, both intellectually and politically. It's very difficult to find instances in the Internal Revenue Code in which which Congress has chosen to tax unrealized gains. It's almost taboo, and it's kind of difficult to... To manage, well, the president also proposed raising the corporate tax rate to 28 percent from 21 percent as part of his budget request and pitched a global minimum tax that's designed to crack down on offshore tax havens. Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema had previously said that she will not support a corporate tax increase. Well, under his envisioned budget, the nation's deficit would shrink by more than $1 trillion over the next decade, over a decade. In fiscal year 2021, the federal deficit reached Nearly $2.8 trillion, according to the CBO, while the nation's debt ballooned to $30 trillion. Well, so much for the uh, president's pivot to the political middle, says the editorial board of the Wash. I should say the Wall Street Journal. 
The fiscal 2023 budget, they write, he unveiled Monday, reproposes most of the bad ideas that haven't passed Congress and adds a new one, a tax on wealth that he refused to endorse as a candidate in 2020. On the economy, he's uh, pivoting further left, presumably to fire up sullen progressives in November. The White House is proposing a new billionaire minimum income tax, which the Federal Trade Commission would call false advertising if a private company tried that description. The tax isn't limited to billionaires, and it applies to more than income. Again, this is from the Wall Street Journal on the president's proposal. It's a new tax on Americans with $100 million or more in assets whose effective tax rate in any year is less than 20% of their income. But these taxpayers already pay 23.8% tax rate on capital gains and 37% on ordinary income. The average tax rate for the top 1% of taxpayers in 2019 was 25.6%. So how does the math Add up. Well, here's what the Wall Street Journal says. Here's the Biden trick. The 20 percent minimum tax rate would apply both to ordinary income and the increase in the values of assets in a given year. This means taxing unrealized capital gains, which currently aren't taxed until assets are sold and income is actually realized. In other words, this is a new tax on wealth. Even if it's structured differently than what Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders has proposed, the White House is redefining wealth as income. For details of the plan aren't uh, fleshed out, or some of them are, but the targets would appear to be nine years to pay the 20 percent tax on the growth of their assets from the first day they accumulated them. Going forward, they'd have five years to pay the tax on their annual unrealized capital gains. And it's not clear whether losses in future years would be allowed to offset annual gains. So a taxpayer might have to pay a tax, say, of $2 million on an unrealized gain in 2022 of $10 million. But if the assets decline by the same $10 million the next year, tough luck. The government would win whether financed Uh, financial and or other assets rise or fall. So it's a rather complex system, but not quite as simple as was announced by the president. We'll continue to fall uh, to follow rather that story as it invariably will develop. Meanwhile, the administration on Monday rolled out the um, budget proposal in the midst of um, Washington's record tax windfall. The money has been rolling in as the most recent Congressional Budget Office figures show. In the first five months of fiscal year 2022 through February, federal receipts climbed a remarkable 26 percent from a year earlier. That's three hundred and seventy one billion dollars more to one point eight trillion dollars in five months. Individual income taxes rose $271 billion, or 38%, to $975 billion. Corporate income taxes rose 31%. Well, these fiscal 2022 increases follow enormous increases in fiscal 21, which ended September 30th. The Congressional Budget Office, or CBO's summary for that year, shows federal receipts at a record $4.05 trillion, which is an 18% increase over fiscal year 2020 and the largest annual revenue increase in five decades. Individual income taxes for fiscal 2021 rose $436 billion, or 27%, to reach $2.04 trillion, which the CBO notes was a function of workers with relatively high incomes who face higher tax rates. Income taxes equaled 9.1% of GDP, well above the 50-year average of 79 Corporate income taxes climbed 75.5%, or uh, $160 billion, to $372 billion. 
philosophical question. Does all of this qualify as paying a fair share of the tax burden? Well, some would suggest no, but the numbers might tell a different story. Well, the explanation for this gusher is an economy that rebounded strongly after the COVID lockdowns. Revenue also flowed in late in the calendar year 2021 as some investors cashed out in anticipation of a possible tax increase that so far hasn't happened, though it still might if the White House gets its way. Anyway, that's the proposal the president has thus made. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Sam tells me I need to take a break, so I do whatever Sam says. We'll be back in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, internal White House records from the day of the attack on the U.S. Capitol that were turned over to the House Select Committee show a gap in President Donald Trump's phone logs of seven hours and 37 minutes, including the period when the building was being violently assaulted, according to documents obtained by CBS News chief election and campaign correspondent Robert Costa and The Washington Post's associate editor Bob Woodward. With a lack of an official White House notation of any calls placed to or by Trump, for 457 minutes from 1117 to 654 on the 6th of January means there's no record of the calls made by the president as his supporters descended on the Capitol, uh, battled uh, the police and entered the building, prompting lawmakers and the vice president to flee for safety. Well, the 11 pages of records, which consist of the president's official daily diary and the White House switchboard call log, were turned over by the National Archives earlier this year to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th events. Well, the records show that Donald Trump, then president, was active on the phone for part of the day, documenting conversations that he had with at least eight people in the morning and 11 that evening. The gap also stands in stark contrast to the extensive public reporting about phone conversations he had with allies during the attack. While the House panel is now investigating whether the president, the former president, communicated that day through back channels, phones of aides or personal disposable phones known as burner phones, according to two people with knowledge of the probe who, like others interviewed for the report, spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive information. The committee is also scrutinizing whether it received the full log from that day. Well, the records show that former White House chief of staff, or I should say chief strategist Stephen Bannon, who said on his um, podcast on the 5th of January that all heck is going to break loose tomorrow. Uh, He spoke with Trump twice on the 6th of January. A spokesman for the committee declined to comment. In a statement Monday night, former President Trump said, I have no idea what a burner phone is. To the best of my knowledge, I have never even heard of them, end quote. Well, a Trump spokesman said that the, that uh, former President Trump had nothing to do with the records and had assumed any and all of his phone calls were recorded and preserved. Now, is this a um, red herring? Is this something uh, that demonstrates something that we should know about? It's not altogether clear, but this will be part of the investigation into the former president, what he did and didn't do uh, on January 6th. Well, no matter what one may think about the events of January 6th, efforts now are underway to block certain members of Congress from running for re-election, but they're without merit. At least that's what uh, Hans von Spakovsky is saying. Several voters have filed a challenge in North Carolina to the candidacy of Republican Representative Madison Cawthorn. 
and they're seeking to have him disqualified from the ba- the ballot. A similar lawsuit has been filed in Wisconsin against Republican Senator Ron Johnson, Representative Tom Tiffany and Representative Scott Fitzgerald, claiming that they are no longer qualified to seek reelection under the 14th Amendment because they participated in an insurrection on January 6th, including by supporting objections to the certification of certain electoral votes. Well, it's um, noteworthy that not a single prosecutor arrested for criminal trespass, assaulting police officers and other actions at the Capitol has been charged under the 18 U.S.C. 2383, which makes it a crime to engage in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States. Additionally, no member of Congress has been arrested, charged or indicted for any actions on that day. So it does leave and raise some questions. Yet the challengers are claiming that these members of Congress are disqualified from holding office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868. Well, that section was aimed at the former Confederacy and said no one could be a member of Congress or hold any federal office who had previously held such a position if they engaged in insurrection or rebellion, referring to the Confederacy. But Section 3 also had a unique provision not found in any other amendment to the Constitution. It gave Congress the power by a vote of two thirds of each house to remove this disqualification. Congress did exactly that to amnesty bills. One in 1872 that kept a limited number of disqualifications for certain members of Congress and the military, and a second in 1898 that got rid of those remaining disqualifications. The plain language of these acts permanently removed the insurrection disqualification in Section 3 from the 14th Amendment. Also, Article 1 of the Constitution lists the three qualifications required to be a representative and senator, age, citizenship, and residency. In 1995, in U.S. Term Limits, Inc. versus Thornton, the U.S. Supreme Court said no state can impose any additional qualifications on any candidate running for Congress. That would certainly include candidates being forced to prove their innocence regarding any claims that they were somewhere involved in the events of January 6th. Well, the Supreme Court also said that a state cannot dress up an additional qualification as a ballot access measure, since that is an indirect attempt to accomplish what the Constitution prohibits the state from accomplishing directly. Any attempts by officials or courts to refuse to allow a candidate's name to be listed on the ballot because of his or her alleged participation in insurrection clearly fails this test. Well, finally, attempts to disqualify candidates because they objected to the certification of certain electoral votes in the joint session of Congress on January 6th have no legal merit either. The objections and the subsequent vote on the objections were done in full compliance with the process outlined in the Electoral Count Act of 1887. And I should note that members of the opposite party did the same in previous uh, electoral count uh, votes. Well, the Electoral Count Act provides that an objection can be filed jointly by a senator and a representative. And upon such an objection being made, the joint session for the counting of electoral votes is temporarily suspended while Congress debates and votes on the objection. If the objection is voted down, the counting resumes, which is exactly what happened on January 6th, 2021. So those objections were within the bounds of the law. And this certainly was not the first time it's happened. And certainly the Republicans aren't the only uh, party that has exercised that uh, provision. Well, the effort to have members of Congress barred from having their names on ballots based on claims that they participated in an insurrection on the 6th of January or objected to electoral votes should fail. 
Congress permanently eliminated the insurrection disqualification in the 14th Amendment in amnesty acts that are still in force today. And the object the objections of uh, to the electoral votes are filed in accordance with federal law. So this, again, is nothing new. Well, all of these efforts and their threats are a desperate attempt to gain political advantage through unconstitutional actions. They may uh, be con- characterized as a waste of time and resources and should be dismissed as such. Again, Hans von Spakowski making the point in response to some states that are attempting to link members of Congress to the events of January 6th, suggesting they have forfeit their right to remain uh, on the ballot. Well, President Joe Biden believes the, that the Ukraine war will mark the start of a new world order. That's the phrase he used in comments last week. In the middle of the COVID global pandemic, Klaus Schwab and global elites likewise announced a great reset. Accordingly, the nations of the world would have to surrender their sovereignty to an international body of experts. They would enlighten us on taxes, diversity and green policies. Uh, When former President Donald Trump got elected in 2016, marquee journalists announced partisan reporting would have to displace the old, supposedly disinterested approach to the news. There is a common theme here, so says Victor Davis Hanson. He writes that in normal times, progressives worry that they do not have public support for their policies. Only in crises do they feel that the political left and media can merge to use apocalyptic times to ram through usually unpopular approaches to foreign and domestic problems. We saw that last year, fleeing from Afghanistan, the embrace of critical race theory, trying to end the filibuster, pack the court, junk the um, electoral college and nationalize voting laws. These new orders and resets always entail far bigger government and more unelected, powerful bureaucracies. Elites assume that their changes in energy use, media reporting, voting sovereignty, racial and ethnic quotas will never quite apply to themselves, the architects of such top-down changes. So we common folks must quit fossil fuels, but not those who need to use corporate jets. After all, what they're doing is important maybe even vital. Walls will not mar our borders, but will protect the homes of Nancy Pelosi, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates. They can afford private security. Hunter Biden lost laptop uh, will be declared by fiat, not news. In contrast, the fake Alpha Bank collusion narrative will be national headline news for weeks. Middle-class lifestyles will be curbed as we are instructed to strive for sustainability and transition to apartment living and mass transit. But the Obamas will still keep their three mansions and Silicon Valley futurists will insist on exemptions for their yachts. After all, what they do matters. In truth, we're about to see a radical reset of the current reset. It will be a different sort of transformation than the elites are expecting and one that they should greatly fear. The world and the United States are furious over hyperinflation that may soon exceed 10 percent per year. We'll be lucky if it ends only in recession or stagflation rather than a global depression. But that, too, is a possibility. The mess was created by the same uh, apparel who um, brought into modern monetary theory. The uh, that silly university idea claimed prosperity would follow vastly expanding the money supply, keeping interest rates de facto zero levels, running huge annual deficits, piling up unsustainable national debt and subsidizing workers to stay home. Natural gas and oil costs are now soaring to unsustainable levels and to the point where the middle class simply will not be able to travel, keep warm in winter or cool in summer. 
Both in Europe and the United States, left-wing governments deliberately curbed drilling in non-Russian pipelines. They shut down nuclear power plants and subsidized costly, inefficient solar and wind projects. They ended up not the uh, with utopia, but with fuel shortages, high prices, and energy dependency on the world's most repressive regimes. The woke revolution in the West was supposed to teach us that the white male-dominated Western world is toxic. Its origins, ascendance, and current leisure and affluence were supposedly due only to systematic exploitation, racism, and sexism. Elites introduced cancel culture, doxing, deplatforming, and social ostracism to shame those supposed exploiters and to destroy their lives and their careers. Well, few asked how a supposedly noxious West of some 2,500 years duration became the number one destination of millions of global non-Western migrants and offered the greatest degree of global prosperity and freedom for its citizens. So a reset reckoning is coming in reaction to the new orders championed by Biden and the Davos set. Well, in the November 2022 midterms, we are likely to see historic no to the orthodox left wing agenda that's resulted in unsustainable inflation, unaffordable energy, war and humiliation abroad, spiraling crime, racial hostility, as well as arrogant defiance from those who deliberately enacted these disastrous policies. What will replace it is a return to what until recently had worked. Closed and secured borders with only legal measured immigration will return. Americans will demand tough police enforcement and deterrent sentences and a return to interrogation and the primacy of individual character rather than separatist fixation on the color of our skin. The public will continue to tune out of the partisan and mediocre mainstream media. We'll see greater increased production of oil and natural gas to transition us slowly to a wider variety of energy, strong national defense and deterrent foreign policies. The prophets of the New World Order sowed the wind and they will soon reap the whirlwind of an angry public worn out by elite incompetence, arrogance and ignorance. Now, whether or not this prophetic view will materialize, we'll find out in the midterm elections and perhaps beyond. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a defiant Governor DeSantis has stood up to what he referred to as the Rainbow Mafia, saying in Florida, we not only know that parents have a right to be involved, we insist that parents have a right to be involved. So said Governor Ron DeSantis, he of the free state of Florida, at a press conference at the Classical Preparatory School in Spring Hill, where he signed into law the Parental Rights and Education Bill that protects children in grades K through 3 from the sex-obsessed agenda of some. Uh, opponents of the bill call it the Don't Say Gay Bill, but there's nothing in it that prohibits the utterance of that once lovely word, What the bill does do, though, is prohibit classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity with children in third grade or younger or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. We're talking about the curriculum. In short, the bill safeguards their innocence. It lets kids be kids, at least for a moment. 
It seems um, obvious, but perhaps the um, uh, opponents of the bill haven't yet learned the lesson taught at the ballot box in Virginia last November. And as for Floridians who disagree with DeSantis' approach, nothing prohibits them from discussing transgenderism with their kindergartners at home, nor from moving to, say, a progressive state like New York or California, where such instruction is no doubt a more integral part of the formative curriculum. In fact, they can get rid of DeSantis if they choose. Well, these freedoms, though, didn't stop the uh, pro-grooming crowd from going after the governor. The Emmy Griffith wrote recently about um, woke Disney's uh, anger. And indeed, the wholesomeness of Hollywood was on full display during Sunday night's Oscars when between breaks from, well, the violent event that we all heard about, uh, the uh, they repeated the the word gay to the delight of, well, themselves. Well, Governor DeSantis, who has a genius for wading into all the right battles, sent a salvo out Tinseltown's way. If the people who held up uh, degenerates like Harvey Weinstein, as example, are opposing us uh, on parental rights, uh, he says that is a badge of honor. He said it differently, but I won't use his words, end quote. Well, two other ankle biters also weighed in. Joe Biden called it a hateful bill. I doubt that he has read it or knows specifically what it allows and doesn't allow. And Pelosi uh, said this cruel legislation is an affront to our nation's cherished values and sends a harmful message to our children. Well, actually, it prevents our children from being confronted with a message until they're old enough to understand. Apparently, you kids uh, be kids and focus on the four R's is a harmful message to our children. The fourth R, of course, is recess, in case you were wondering. Well, as for harmful messages, consider the shocking case of January Littlejohn, a Florida mom whose 13-year-old daughter was, for lack of a better term, preyed upon by school officials. What about uh, the collective wrath, you ask? Well, this was a, a fight that um, organizations were engaged in. What about the potential for industry-wide and even statewide retribution against the Sunshine State? Well, the governor says we're not concerned about boycotts or other economic harm to Florida as a result of any legislation. His spokesperson, Christina Pushaw, said, but even if we were, no amount of money would convince Governor DeSantis to change his position. He will always stand for parental rights and protecting children. Is it any wonder that freedom-loving folks keep flocking to the free state of Florida? Speaking of freedom, Dan McLaughlin points out that freedom of speech is a natural human right and an important social value. It's not the only social value, like any other right or or value, rather. It must sometimes be balanced against others, such as democracy, equality, public safety, and the freedoms of conscience and association. But it is a bedrock value of tremendous importance. Whether or how it's protected in law varies by who is threatening it. The federal or state government, schools, businesses, even where speech is threatened only by private actors and is not protected by law, however, the culture of free speech is worth defending. If free speech dies as a cultural value, it will no longer be respected in law. And if the culture of free speech dies within the legal profession, the laws on the books will become unenforceable. A nation of laws is only as strong as its nation of lawyers. That's why we should be particularly alarmed when young lawyers seek to stifle free speech. Well, the core of freedom of speech is allowing encounters between willing speakers and willing listeners with the goal of advancing the truth through an adversarial process of dispute and reflection rather than by restricting ideas deemed too dangerous to discuss among mature adults. Now, whether we are discussing the legal right to speech or the broader cultural value, much of the confusion 
often deliberate, over free speech revolves around the failure to acknowledge the dual roles of the willing speaker and the willing listener. Your right to speak does not include a right to compel others to listen to you, a right to compel others to affirm or repeat your message, or a right to prevent other people from listening to speakers you reject. As a private citizen or a private organization, you have the right not to be forced to offer private platform to speak um, uh, to speech you would not endorse. We'll benefit from liberal norms of free speech that promote a large public marketplace of ideas. A liberal society, however, must make space for individuals and organizations to act illiberally in order to control their own message. A church can expel unbelievers, a political party or an ideological publication or group can demand adherence to its principles. Those organizations acting in an illiberal manner internally can help them promote an external message that competes with the marketplace of ideas. It helps them become willing speakers available to willing listeners. Well, he was responding to Yale University law school students who shouted down an opposing point of view and inviting uh, invited speaker uh, who was well qualified, held a view that they did not um, agree with and refused to even allow that individual to speak, to share that view. It was rather, um, it was rather an ugly episode. In fact, one judge suggested that before uh, looking to hire these new young lawyers, presuming they passed the bar examination, um, this episode should be taken into account. If attorneys, young attorneys, um, people who are entering into the legal profession do not embrace the notion of free speech, how can they engage in the, uh, the uh, profession that they are about to enter? He goes on to write that fundamentally there are three types of threats to speech. One is the sort of government censorship or government interference that is against the law. But what constitutes government censorship is sometimes misunderstood. Much of the recent pushback against, say, critical race theory in classrooms and workplaces or the instruction of young children in sexual ideology is not about obstructing messages to willing listeners, but about resisting the indoctrination of compelled listeners. There are fair debates about how you draw those lines because it's impossible to educate children without conveying values. But when government employees, such as public school teachers, speak in their official capacity to a captive audience, they are engaging in the use of government power, not their own private speech. That exercise of government power should, like any such exercise, be subject to the ultimate control and supervision of the voters, and it should reflect their values. Do you like critical race theory? Take a college elective, buy a book, attend a lecture on your own time. Those are all exercises of willing listening. Don't mandate it for school kids or employees. Do you want to promote your sexual ideology? It's a free country, but not in a public kindergarten. Well, the second type of threat to is private censorship, behavior by private actors that obstruct encounters between willing speakers and willing listeners. That we saw at Yale University's law school. Private censorship is mostly legal, although at times it can run afoul of various specific rules, such as contracts, antitrust laws. But the more pervasive it becomes, the more it can crowd out the access of willing listeners to willing speakers. That is the case with secondary boycotts. If you hate Joe Rogan, don't listen to his show. That is the free market of free speech at work. But attempting to use commercial pressure on Spotify in order to prevent his willing listeners from finding him, that's anti-speech. It is the prevention of willing exchanges of ideas on the theory that your rights to impose economic consequences on Rogan's message rather, are greater than the rights of Rogan's listeners to hear that message. 
This person says wrong things believed by a large audience is never a valid basis for seeking suppression of speech. Private censorship is also at work when mobs try to use noise and force of their collective presence to prevent speakers from being heard, particularly those who are invited. Third and finally, the least dangerous threat, but a threat nonetheless, is censoriousness. Free speech doesn't mean freedom from any and all consequences for speech, saying some things should get you fired from your job or ostracized by your friends. But to establish the practice of shaming the worst kinds of speech doesn't mean that every disagreement should be met that way. A culture of censoriousness means one that respects the forms of free speech, but strangles uh, the practice by a continuous posture of outrage and overreaction. A culture that values speech, civility, a diversity of viewpoints, and a spirit of tolerance and humility and humanity will not overdose itself on that particular vice. Well, it's um, a subject that needs to be considered quite carefully as we are, are finding lines being drawn, drawn rather, either voluntarily or by force, and whether or not we will remain a free speech nation remains yet to be seen. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. Uh, we're going to take a, what, 22-hour break. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.